When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 23 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, July the 9th. First, I'll be talking to Simon Sheik, founder of Fossil Fuel Free Super Fund Super, Super Future. And we'll be talking about Scott Morrison's promise to reach net zero emissions, preferably by 2050 by vowing he won't sacrifice our traditional industries in regional areas by taxing emissions to reach the goal. But why wait until 2050 to reach net zero emissions when these could be met tomorrow through where you invest your super? What does net zero by 2050 even mean aside from a lot of empty promises? And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver as investors navigate one of the most important reserve bank decisions since the pandemic and the impacts of the delta strain of COVID-19. But now let's talk to Simon Sheik. Simon, uh, uh, you have views about uh, Scott Morrison saying uh, we're going to be net zero by 2050. You're saying that's impossible. Well, we need to get to net zero much faster than 2050, uh, is what I would say. Uh, And of course, at the moment, Australia doesn't have a plan to get there. It's pretty hard to get there without real action like climate, like carbon pricing. Um, You can't really get there just relying on technology improvements alone. And I think that's part of where the problem lies. Well, Scott Morrison seems to be placing it on technologies such as CCS, which I, I don't think has ever been proven to work anywhere. Well, it's certainly a technology that's unlikely to play any material part in Australia getting to net zero, that's for sure. Um, but the question really then becomes, well, could other technology help? And of course it could. We actually have all the technology we need to get to net zero by 2050, if not well beforehand. The question in Australia is not a question of technology, but a question of political will. Now, I mean, I mean, if, if you leave it till uh, 2050, I mean, it means we're going to have uh, one in a hundred year floods becoming annual events and more widespread bushfires during that period. The question of climate action can be quite demoralising when you realise that we're already past critical tipping points. Uh, the idea that we have to limit temperature rises to 1.5 degrees in order to have at least even a remote chance, a 50-50 chance, I should say, of a livable planet. Well, the science now suggests that it's too late to limit it to 1.5 degrees. And so does that mean we all just give up and stick our head in the sand? Well, of course it doesn't because it's a spectrum of outcomes here. And even the term spectrum of outcome 
hides the grim reality we're talking about, which is stronger climate action will save millions of people's lives and livelihoods and billions of species of the world. The magnitude is extraordinary. The permafrost is, uh, in the Arctic, major problem, and we have to address it with a warlike thing, which means we have to use every lever available to us, whether it's the money in our superannuation funds, investing in renewable energy, or governments going out there and directly building projects, setting the regulatory frameworks to get in the markets to work to all of us individually, uh, putting solar on the roofs where we can or changing our electricity provider. A warlike footing means it all needs to happen, and not in 2050, but now. Is business doing enough to address this? Well, I think we've seen a huge change in business, uh, speaking broadly. A couple of years ago, I think the answer would be a clear no. But right now, I'm not, I don't think you can name that many businesses in the ASX 100 that aren't working feverishly on how they're going to change their business model to work in a net zero world. And so you've got the farmers lobby out there and the farming community out there making big changes. You've got the business community out there making big changes. You've got individuals making big changes. But at the moment, it's all happening without any coordination. Right, okay. And so what role can super play? Well, superannuation, $3 trillion of assets in Australia, makes it one of the largest pools of capital in the world that we all control. It's our money and our super. Now, we released some uh, research that the University of Technology Sydney did with us a few years ago that showed that just 7.7% of Australia's superannuation savings between now and 2030 could fully fund the transition to a 100% renewable energy-powered electricity grid. So clearly, superannuation is the pool of capital that needs to be unlocked to take action on climate change. There are two ways in which we unlock it. Starting now, we all switch our super to those providers that are investing in renewable energy. But the big opportunity here as well, of course, is for governments to set the policy settings to such that they are attracting and pushing superannuation funds to invest in nation-building infrastructure. And, of course, uh, investors would have to actually be pushing super funds to do the same, wouldn't they? That's right. And the investment community sees great opportunity uh, in making money uh, from the transition. Big transitions in, in, of whole economies and whole societies moving from one energy system to another create huge opportunities to deploy capital. And so the investment community, I think, broadly is up for the challenge. One of the big issues, of course, has been one of the reasons for the political stalemate has been, of course, the fossil fuel industry. And that's exerted enormous influence on government decisions and, for that matter, the opposition stance as well. I think you point to something really important here because a lot of people say, well, why? Okay, investors want action, business more broadly wants action, consumers want action, so why aren't we seeing enough from government? Yes, you're right. There are a small number... Uh, of fossil fuel companies who contribute a relatively small amount in political donations, $6 million over the last 10 years. And that's enough to buy a seat at the table and to buy significant influence in Australia's political landscape. To give you a practical example, the National Party now, who are a major recipient of fossil fuel donations, uh, because of the nature of where they get their vote from, they end up with quite a few seats in the parliament and end up with a blocking stake on climate action inside the Liberal Party. We saw this, for example, when Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister, wanted to take action on climate change and had his Prime Ministership threatened to be blown up by the National Party if he was to do anything serious on climate change. And so he capitulated, which was a great shame. Uh, The National Party, sadly, though, you would think, in your minds, we all think, oh, the National Party represent farmers. Oh, maybe that's why they're not taking action on climate change. Well, no. 
the farming, the National Farming Lobby Group is very clear in support of action on climate change. Farmers that I speak to and farmers more broadly want to see their food bowls protected from the expansion of the fossil fuel industry, like the gas sector, for example. They want to see uh, themselves playing a positive role in sequestering carbon in soil or land management techniques that support. Farmers have a role to play. The National Party, through those mining donations, are subverting that role, and that's a great shame uh, for Australia's democracy. It really shows you how small pockets of power can have a massive influence, and that part of taking climate action, therefore, is changing the system. For example, banning all political donations from companies full stop would go a long way to fixing the climate issue. One of the issues that the government is focusing on is a gas-led battle against climate change. I mean, what's your view about that? Well, I guess the main thing we have to start with are the facts. Gas is a fossil fuel. Uh, We now know much more than we did 10 or 15 years ago just how bad gas is as a fossil fuel, just how emitting both its direct emissions are and what we call fugitive emissions. So we know that gas needs to stay in the ground if we're to have any chance of having a reasonable future when it comes to tackling climate change. Now, the government are at the moment, because of the power of the gas lobby, really focused on trying to open up more gas in Australia. They argue that bringing down, that opening up more gas will bring down prices and that bringing down prices will start a manufacturing sector boom. But the manufacturing industry itself and the government's own experts say, actually, that's not true. One, because opening up these gas wells are not going to drive down the price anywhere near what would be required to make it competitive. And, and two, we've got a global gas price market. And so our pricing is somewhat linked to the global gas market. So if we want to build a manufacturing sector in Australia and we want to take action on climate change, what do we do? Good news. We've got the solutions right in front of us. Pumped storage, pumped hydro, batteries deployed all around the country in strategic locations and plenty of solar and wind. These technologies mean that gas is obsolete. It's more expensive and it's less effective in combating the climate crisis. So why would we consider it? One of the, one of the keys then might be getting actually, again, getting a price on carbon. Nothing can beat a price on carbon because, and I've, and I've thought about this long and hard over many years as I've been a great supporter of all the other types of actions we can take. But what it comes down to is this. We live in a society, whether some people like it or not, that is driven by the market. Uh, so much of what we do is driven by market forces. And at the end of the day, those market forces are fairly easy to determine or to change the direction of. If you price in carbon, you price in an externality, and suddenly every business out there wants to do the right thing because they've got an expense in their P&L that they don't want to have next year. Well, we're already seeing, and this is really interesting, some of your listeners may be seeing this and may be part of this, is major Australian businesses think that carbon pricing is so inevitable that they're already going out there and buying carbon permits because they're cheaper right now. They're getting ahead of the game. They're buying huge amounts of voluntary carbon. Uh, And that's a good thing, but it's only a good thing if one day the government wakes up and says, yes, it's time to actually price carbon in addition to doing a range of other measures, direct action, so to speak, voluntary measures as well. Well, for the coalition government, that's politically fraught. I actually think that the coalition government right now could do it. And Scott Morrison, if anybody could do it, it would be Scott Morrison. He is uniquely placed. He is well-loved inside his party. His COVID response, whilst shaky on occasion, has got him lots of support. The nature of volatility of the society we live in now, thanks to COVID and other issues, means that there's, he's really not under any leadership threat. Uh, if, he's go- if you're going to see carbon pricing brought in, 
you're going to do so in a way that doesn't involve a huge argy-bargy. It's into right politician who can get the job done uh, if he decides to do so. And he's under a lot of pressure because the Liberal Party is losing huge numbers of votes in marginal seats in, in urban areas. Uh, and so what they need to do is form a partnership as reasonable members in the, in the National Party to get something done. I think that's eminently possible, but it's a question of leadership. And this is where Scott Morrison is falling down regularly at the moment. He just doesn't appear to be willing to exercise his own power. He should, he should be better than that, and I think he could be. You're saying what we need is super funds to come in, and we need a price on carbon, and we need the government to show some clear leadership on this. Well, where financial markets play a role and superannuation play a role is they actually create the space for the government. When you've got the business sector and taking action on climate change, and to say, well, our people are already there, let me jump in front of them and lead them. Uh, that's often how politicians speak about uh, leading the, the former uh, House Republican John Boehner spoke about that in his book recently. If any of your listeners have read that, where are my people? I must jump in front of them and lead them. Well, the business community in Australia are a core constituency for the Liberal Party. And the reality is we can drive what business do. That's the power of our money. If we move our superannuation and we demand our superannuation funds make investments uh, in progressive causes like climate action, it means that those super funds then go and pressure the companies they're investing in to say, well, we've made a net zero pledge. Where's your net zero pledge? Because by the way, we've made our pledge and therefore if you don't come along for the ride, we will divest uh, ourselves uh, from you or we'll downweight your size in our portfolio. What's amazing here is the, is the flywheel, if you like, that can be created between a person writing to their super fund or just switching their super fund to a better provider and the power that that then gives the super fund to go and take the message to the companies and the companies then to go and put solar on their roofs or decarbonise their portfolios internally. That feedback loop is extraordinary and we're seeing it all the time right now. Telstra's out there rolling out renewable energy like no tomorrow. The big companies are trying to work out how to be all about renewals. and Simon, that's all fascinating, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Shane, uh, the market uh, this week is posting the prospect of navigating one of the most important reserve bank decisions since the pandemic and, and the uh, impacts of the Delta strain of the COVID-19. Um, how's it affecting the market? Well... So far, it's caused a bit of uncertainty. We have seen a bit of a rotation back toward pandemic winners, if you call it that. And, of course, the, uh, we had sort of caught up year-to-date with the US share market. And, of course, now partly because of the pandemic uncertainties, we've lagged. Uh, we've fallen back a bit in a relative sense. My take on it is uh, the Reserve Bank. I mean, those two things are big uncertainties, what the Reserve Bank does and also the pandemic. I think the Reserve Bank, uh, even though it's most likely to take some sort of step towards the monetary easing exits. It'll be a very gradual one and very cautious, and their commentary will be uh, dovish. I don't think the RBA will want to upset markets or confidence generally in the recovery, um, given the issues around the the latest Delta outbreak or coronavirus outbreak. In terms of the uh, pandemic itself, I mean, obviously it adds a a high degree of uncertainty. Australia's uh, relatively behind in terms of vaccinations, but by the same token, you know, these snap lockdowns have been put in place relatively early, and we have seen already, uh, prior to the one in New South Wales, we've already seen eight snap lockdowns since South Australia in November last year. And the evidence from those snap lockdowns is that providing they're put in place relatively quickly, 
Uh, yes, there's a short-term hit to economic indicators, but then they quickly bounce back once the lockdown ends. So the good news is that the lockdowns in various cities across Australia, except New South Wales, have already ended. There's still some uncertainties there, but they were put in place with relatively low numbers, and it seems as if the numbers remain relatively low. And likewise, in New South Wales, the lockdown was started probably a little bit later than I would have liked in terms of getting it under control, but still, you know, we were averaging around 20 cases when it started, whereas in Victoria last year, in July, they'd already gone above 60 and already above 600 by the time they got to the hard lockdown in August. So, fingers crossed, I'm reasonably hoping it'll be a relatively short lockdown. And if that's the case, then I think economic recovery will continue and this won't be enough to derail the recovery, which I think would be good news and good news for the market. The market's actually been performing quite well despite the lockdown. Yeah, it's uh, all that's happened really is that it's been a relative lag, you'd say, compared to the US. It's not as if it's fallen heavily. Last, the past week was flat. It had a very strong financial year. So I don't think we can complain to any degree. It's just that I would have thought by now we would have been a clear outperformer relative to the US share market, whereas the US share market um, continues to outperform, not dramatically, but continues to outperform. So really all that uh, the uncertainty around the Reserve Bank and coronavirus has done is sort of hit the market in a relative sense, not an absolute sense. I mean, the RBA will keep interest rates on hold to probably to 0.1% for some time, but uh, certainly the futures market and certainly the Commonwealth Bank is forecasting that there'll be a rate hike in uh, November two, 2022. Uh, what impact will that have on the market? Well, it depends where we are with the economic recovery. Uh, the history of these things has been that, that the first rate hikes in cycles by the Fed or the RBA caused a bit of uncertainty. I don't think that means uh, we'll, we'll then see many more rate hikes on top of, the, top of each other. Um, but history has been that as long as the economy continues to recover, which I think it will, continues to grow and earnings continue to grow, then the share market can push higher, which is what I think will happen. Uh, in recent times, we have seen the market pull that forward. Uh, for most of this year, our forecast has been for 2023, but there wasn't much interest in it. Uh, of course, now with the strong jobs numbers, um, a lot of economists have pulled their numbers forward in terms of the, the first tightening into 2023, and some have been talking about uh, 2022. Uh, in fact, we can't rule out late 2022, so it's certainly a risk, but our base case is early 2023. Uh, my, my take on that is that that's, that's it's still a fair way away. You know, even if it is November 2022, that's uh, 17 months or so away, 16, 16 months or so away, so it's still a fair way off before that event actually comes to pass. Uh, and in the meantime, the market will be more focused on the ongoing economic recovery and uh, rebound in earnings will, will be the key focus. But obviously, as we get closer to that rate hike, uh, it will start to have more of an impact. But history has told us that bull markets usually don't end until monetary policy has become very tight and we're seeing um, a prospective decline in earnings. And I think at this stage, we're still a long, long way away from that. And even when they start raising interest rates, we'll still be a long way from tight monetary policy. OK, and you talked about winners and losers in the market uh, with the Delta variant and COVID-19. I mean, what, which, uh, what are the, who are the winners, who are the losers? Well, I guess if we're going into a severe uh, lockdown, uh, like some of the ones we saw through 2020, then the winners would be probably healthcare stocks, uh, but particularly IT stocks, the old stay at home and use technology sort of thing, and maybe some consumer discretionary. I mean, that was the, the pattern through last year. But I suspect, and we have seen a little bit of that 
um, over the last week or two, but it's been a bit messy. And I think it's also been impacted by the US, uh, which has also seen a bit of messiness in the last week or two because of the um, gyrations about what the Fed might or might not do. But if the lockdown is relatively short, then I think any benefit to IT stocks, to healthcare stocks, to consumer discretionary stocks will be a, a short-term phenomenon. And that the more likely scenario is that we'll go back to reopening and focus on cyclical stocks uh, where there's still more upside. And I would include the financials within that, but also materials, industrials. Um, consumer stocks still do well, but you've just got to allow that that rotation away from goods to services will continue. It tends to be the case there's more goods, goods producing or retailing consumer stocks on the market than there are services-related stocks. So, but, but I tend to think that any boost to pandemic-related stocks, particularly IT, will be a temporary one. Uh, and what about retail stocks? Well, retail, yeah, fit in there. I, I think it's a little bit confused for retail. You know, last year they did see benefits as people couldn't spend on holidays, so they spent on, and on services generally, so they spent on goods, stocking up the house, new furnishings, home offices and so on. Now, maybe you could argue there could be a bit more of that, but I suspect that that trade is almost tapped out, that that huge bring forward of spending on consumer durables has probably done its dash uh, for now, and you'd think that anyone who was going to work at home has already set themselves up to do that. So it's hard to see that happening all over again. You know, people don't wear out their home office desks or their, their home chairs <laughs> that quickly. Uh, so I suspect that any boost to durable goods retailers will be a, a temporary one. And that as we reopen, you'll see this ongoing rebalancing away from what's traditionally called retail sales in Australia towards more services. That's the other part of consumer spending. And therefore, we're probably, particularly when you allow for the fact that retail sales are still about 8% above their pre-COVID trend, we're probably into, we're probably coming into a more constrained environment overall for retail sales compared to services. Most of the opportunities would be in services as the reopening continues, assuming, of course, that uh, this, this, these latest outbreaks come under control. Uh, now, you talked about the US market gyrating on the Fed. I mean, what impact, uh, and the Fed is talking about rate hikes, what impact will that have on Australia? Well, there is a correlation. It's not a perfect one between the US share market and the Australian share market. You can often see that overnight. That the US uh, share market, whatever the US share market does, if it's a big move, can sometimes set the tone for our market. And there is a, and there is a cyclical correlation. Both markets came down into the pandemic through the GFC, both markets uh, recovered afterwards. So there is that relationship. Uh, if the Fed follows a, a similar trajectory to the Reserve Bank, you know, they both start raising rates in 2023 and they both do it cautiously, then I, I don't think what the Fed does will have any more impact on our market than what the RBA does. They'll be one and the same. But the pattern has been that traditionally when you see the Fed start raising rates, that first rate hike, whether it's uh, 1994 or I think it was 2004 and after the GFC the, around 2015, um, the first rate hike in a cycle tends to be associated with a bit of a correction, some wobbles in the US share market, and that can affect our market. It certainly did in uh, 1994 and it certainly did in uh, 2015 going into, into 2016. So there's no doubt about that. But the history also suggests beyond that first hike, once investors get their mind around it, then the share market, bull market, continues as you know, earnings continue to improve. And the bull market ultimately doesn't come to an end until we've seen multiple hikes 
uh, from the Fed. So I, I think that relationship will prevail and that will have a similar impact on our market. First Fed hike may coincide with the first RBA hike, um, which could cause some gyrations in share markets, both here and in the US. But I think beyond that, we'll, we'll see the resumption of the bull market. Um, it won't come to an end for several years. Hence, uh, once it's clear that uh, the earnings cycle has peaked, but I think that's a fair way off. Finally, I mean, do, do you see our market still performing well for, this, for the rest of this year? I think it probably will. Look, we've had a, a very strong financial year. There's no doubt about that. You may have seen the headlines that it's the best financial year in terms of the ASX 200 since 1987. Got to be a little bit careful there because 1980, financial year 1987 was preceded by financial year 1986, which was also a very, very strong year. These were huge, massive double-digit years in the uh, run-up to the 87 uh, bull market and then eventual crash, whereas we've had a strong year, 30% or so return over the, over the year to, the ju- to June, um, but that followed a negative the previous year. So it's nowhere near the sort of euphoric environment that we were seeing in, in mid-80s. So it's a very different environment. That said, I think we do have to allow two things. One is that uh, sooner or later we're going to have a decent correction, 5, 10, even 15% pullback. That's just the way markets work. It could be because of more inflation fears. It could be because of more talk about the Fed or the RBA or whatever it is. Or it could be because of another worldwide coronavirus scare. Uh, we are coming into the Northern Hemisphere winter, the summer rather. Sort of a bit of an outbreak last year in the summer, believe it or not, even though it was summer, in the Northern Hemisphere. And there's still a chunk of people in Europe, even in the UK and the US, who are still unvaccinated. So there is a bit of a risk there that that could happen. Although I would point out, I don't think it'll be anywhere near as scary as the ones we've seen in the past, because so many people have been vaccinated, particularly older people, that you're not going to see anywhere near the, the level of fatalities or hospitalisations. So, but that could still cause a bit of a a gyration as we come through into the seasonally weaker months of August, September. That, that's the first point to note. The second point to note, though, is that I think the bull market will continue, but at slower rates of increase. History tells us that the first phase of a bull market, the first year or so, the first 12 months, maybe a little bit longer, uh, sees very strong double-digit gains. The second, the second phase when you come into that period where we're more dependent on earnings coming through rather than monetary easing or cheap valuations sees more constrained returns. So it'd be more sensible to assume high single digit returns rather than double digit returns going forward. But in the very, inter, very short term period, we could have a bit of a correction, but I think over a six to 12 month horizon, um, we get reasonable returns just more constrained than they have been. Well, Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Leon. All the best. So what's happening in the news? Well, the Reserve Bank of Australia has left the official cash rate unchanged at a record low of 0.1% as it continues to consider how to guide the nation's recovery from the pandemic. In a statement following the RBA's monthly board meeting, Governor Philip Lowe said the board had decided to leave the target at 10 basis points where it has stood since November last year. The RBA also kept three-year bond yield target at 10 basis points. And employment opportunities continue to explode in Australia, with 13 consecutive months of increased job vacancies. The Australian Government's vacancy report reveals almost a quarter of a million roles, that's 245,400, available in May, the highest job ad volumes in more than 12 years, and exceeding pre-pandemic levels by 46%. 
And large foreign investment funds have warned they could blacklist Australia and cut billions of dollars of investments in the country if the federal government fails to join the rest of the world in committing to a net zero 2050 greenhouse gas emissions target. The warning backs up concerns of the Reserve Bank of Australia that the economy is at risk from foreign investors withdrawing capital because of perceptions among global fund managers that the Morrison government is resisting strong action on climate change. The US $1.4 trillion, that's $1.9 trillion Aussie investment in management firm Invesco, said Australia's climate change policies were an important consideration for its investments under its environment, social and corporate governance rules. Canadian pension funds, which are big investors in Australian infrastructure assets, said climate change was a strong consideration for for their investments. Canada's Public Sector Pension Investment Board said climate change was one of several long-term structural trends that will likely have a material impact on investment risks and returns across different sectors, geographies and asset classes. And Crown Resorts has admitted to the Victorian government that it underpaid its casino tax for almost a decade but claimed it only owes $8 million, despite some legal advice suggesting the figure could be significantly higher. The group's newly appointed Chief Executive, Stephen McCann, told the State's Royal Commission on Tuesday that he wrote to the Victorian Treasury last week conceding Crown had made illegal deductions from its poker machine tax calculations since 2013. His testimony came as Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews said the prospect of Crown losing its Melbourne licence was very, very real. And Crown Resorts has told the market it expected to post a statutory loss this financial year as lockdowns hit the casino giants' casinos and restaurants in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. The James Packerback casino giant said the result was still subject to review and it would reveal the full extent of the losses when it reports on August 30th. And the nation's CEOs, like almost everyone else, aren't getting pay rises like they used to, a pay report has revealed. The data from a major survey of CEO directors and senior management pay packets reveals COVID-19 has snipped pay rises to half those of the year before. The Executive Remuneration Report, released by Aon and the Governance Institute of Australia, shows only 25% of the nation's most senior execs received a pay rise in 2020. This was well down on the 53% who took a pay bump in 2019. The data drawn from annual reports of ASX 300 organisations on top of the 113 participating organisations, also finds that for those who did get a pay rise, the size of the increase was down on the year earlier at just 1.4%. That is compared to the 2% pay rises enjoyed by the C-suite in 2019. And Australia's biggest pension fund notched a record return in fiscal 2021, as strong market performance in the wake of the pandemic lifted assets under management. Australian Super's default investment option returned 20.43% in the 12 months ended June 30, the 12th consecutive year of gains, the fund said in a statement on Monday. The Melbourne-based fund's assets under management rose to $225 billion from $180 billion a year ago, as money keeps flowing into the country's compulsory retirement savings system. And billionaire retailer Solomon Liu has launched a new attack on Maya, calling on the entire board to resign after confirming he spent $16.4 million this week, increasing his stake in the embattled department store retailer to at least 15.8%. Mr Liu, the chairman of Premier Investments, said he would work with other shareholders to reconstitute the Maya board, appointing directors who had expertise in retail, property, logistics and e-commerce to help Maya reverse its decline. And tumbling rates of smoking a drop in alcohol consumption and the rise of electric vehicles will punch a hole in the federal budget worth tens of billions of dollars and force the slack to be filled by ordinary taxpayers. There are already signs of sharp increase in cigarette excise over recent years aimed at encouraging people to give up tobacco use, hitting the budget, with revenue falling more than $2 billion short of expectations in a single year. 
It follows years of large increases in excise by both sides of politics, cigarette plan packaging, and a change in the timing of the excise collection that delivered a one-off $3.2 billion increase in excise in the 2019-20 financial year. These increases has made tobacco excise the fourth largest individual tax collected by the federal government at an estimated $15 billion last financial year. The Commonwealth collects more in tax on cigarettes than on superannuation, $11.7 billion, fringe benefits tax, $3.9 billion, or petrol excise, $5.9 billion. But tobacco consumption has cratered over the past two years, in part due to the excise increases. In the 12 months before the COVID-19 pandemic, it fell by 12.8%, while over the past year it has fallen by another 11.1%. This is eating into revenue expectations. Pre-COVID, the government was expecting to collect $16.5 billion in tobacco excise in 2021-22. Now it is expecting $14.8 billion. The hit is even larger in 2022-23, with tobacco excise down by $2.4 billion on pre-COVID forecasts. It's not just tobacco excise where there are growing gaps. Alcohol and petrol excise are at risk, with the intergenerational report released last week by Josh Treasurer Josh Frydenberg highlighting the threat they pose to the budget. And the Morrison government's four-phase exit plan from the pandemic means Australia will be locked away from the rest of the world until late 2022, and its economic recovery held hostage to vaccine hesitancy. AO Group CEO Innes Willocks has warned. Other business leaders agreed with the grim assessment, saying that unrealistic vaccination targets for reopening lack of a clear timeline meant Australia will continue to face lockdowns and talent shortages as the rest of the world speeds towards recovery. And international airlines claimed they could be forced to suspend services to Australia from next week after National Cabinet agreed to halve the number of people allowed to enter the country and they say any suggestion of price gouging is insulting and bizarre. From the 14th of July, overseas arrivals will be slashed from 6,070 to 3,035 a week, crushing the hopes of thousands of Australians stuck overseas and looking to get home. According to the most recent figures from the Foreign Affairs Department, there are 34,000 Australians stuck overseas still waiting to return home. And the Australian Competition Consumer Commission is preparing a second assault on Facebook and Google. The failure of a landmark anti-monopoly case against Facebook by the US Federal Trade Commission will not stop global regulators from waging an aggressive campaign against a social media giant over the next two years, Australian Competition Consumer Commission Rod Sims has said. Following last week's court decision in Washington, which pushed Facebook's market value above US $1 trillion, that's $1.33 trillion Aussie, Mr Sims said Facebook and Google's power was as big a problem as a millionaire Rockefeller's family control of, of a global oil refining market a century ago, which was ultimately ruled an illegal monopoly by the US Supreme Court. He said the ACCC was gathering evidence of market power abuses by the American companies and planned to use two current inquiries to launch a new assault on them in conjunction with counterparts in Europe, Britain, the US and Canada. And lockdowns in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth will shatter the confidence of people booking interstate holidays for the rest of the year, the tourism industry warns. While tourism operators across the country had hoped for a bumper school holiday period, multiple coronavirus outbreaks ended that, with mass cancellations in key markets leaving businesses trying to salvage what remained of the mid-year break. Tourism Transport Forum Chief Executive Margie Osmond said the multiple lockdowns across states had shaved $6 billion off the forecast $10.2 billion in tourism consumption for the school holiday period. New South Wales was the worst affected, with its two-week lockdown costing about $150 million in lost business, with city hotels emptying out. 
Sydney's two-week lockdown has been the biggest headache, effectively killing Queensland's largest tourism market, especially in the coastal hotspots of the Gold Coast, Noosa and North Queensland. Queensland Tourism Industry Council Chief Executive Daniel Gushwind said the the end of Brisbane's four-day lockdown on Saturday night was a boost to the sector, but people will now be gun-shy about taking an interstate trip in the September school holidays. As Australia's vaccine rollout slowly picks up pace, a South Australian startup is launching clinical trials of its COVID-19 shot in Iran in the hope of getting emergency approvals by the end of the year. Adelaide-based biotech Vaccine launched Phase 2 trials of its vaccine in May as part of an agreement with its Tehran-based biotech partner, Synogen. The Phase 2 study involved 400 patients being injected with either vaccine's product or a placebo, with two doses given 21 days apart. The vaccine, which has been called COVAX-19, but could be rebranded to Spikogen if commercialised, is a protein-based vaccine that uses a synthetic version of of the virus spike protein to prompt an immune response. Vaccine founder and Flinders University professor Nikolai Petrovsky said the company had to look overseas where there are considerable coronavirus cases to launch human trials. Synogen approached the firm to negotiate a development partnership. Iran has recorded more than 3.1 million cases of coronavirus and 84,000 deaths. There is still a long way to go before the product can be launched with data from the project's trials yet to be published and peer-reviewed. Vaccine, which was founded in 2002, works on vaccine development for a range of diseases. The company has pushed hard for smaller businesses to have more involvement in the development of COVID-19 vaccines, and the company has had to find international partners to set up trials. An ASIC-listed Sydney airport has received an unsolicited $8.25 per share takeover proposal from a consortium of infrastructure investors that values the business at $22 billion. The consortium comprises of IFM investors, QSuper and Global Infrastructure Management. Sydney Airport has told investors that they should take no action on the unsolicited $22 billion takeover bid. The airport, which makes most of its money from international travellers, has struggled during the pandemic. International travellers are far more lucrative than domestic travellers for the airport because the fees charged on international passengers are much higher and they spend more money at airport shops. And Andrew Forrest has joined a band of big-name billionaires, each investing a minimum US $50 million, that's $66 million Aussie, in a Bill Gates-led venture capital fund focused on emerging greenhouse gas reducing technologies. Other investors in Breakthrough Energy Ventures, BV, include Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Virgin founder Richard Branson, businessman and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, Saudi Arabia's Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, and LinkedIn Executive Chairman Reid Hoffman. BEV's initial venture capital fund raised US $1.1 billion from more than 20 billionaires who, BEV said, embraced the need to take significant technical risks to achieve net zero carbon emissions target. The fund kicked off with investments in 46 businesses across agriculture, construction, electricity, manufacturing and transport. And Westpac has moved to liquidate foreign finance and freeze the assets of several executives behind the equipment leasing company after uncovering an alleged $260 million fraud. The bank launched legal action against a Sydney headquartered firm after telling investors on Friday it was subject to significant potential fraud. The Federal Court has ordered that a provisional liquidator be appointed to foreign finance by the end of this week. It is understood the Westpac board learned of the alleged fraud about two weeks ago and was informed that fraudulent paperwork and invoices were involved. The Westpac investigation into foreign finance comes as Society Generale also took separate legal action against the finance firm, alleging deceptive conduct with a potential exposure of $9 million. Foreign finance, which started in 2011 in Sydney has expanded to establish offices in Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth. The alleged scandal has seen several customers of the least finance business caught up in the matters. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Lucy Piper, Director for Work for Climate, 
a world-first Australian climate change program offering tools and resources for professionals to accelerate corporations to net zero emissions. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the growing level of government debt and the intergenerational report. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 